Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit Quora.org. We hope you enjoy this message. In just three years of public ministry, Jesus managed to change the world. Much of Jesus' ministry centered upon his preaching and teaching to the masses. And when he did this, he almost always taught by telling these incredible stories. Stories have power. Stories spark emotion. Stories inspire us to change our hearts and our minds. Jesus was a masterful storyteller. And just as they did back then, these incredible stories continue to transform us today. Today we are concluding our series of sermons where we've been focusing in on the parables, these incredible stories that Jesus told. And if you've been with us for the last three weeks, then you've uncovered this reality about the stories that Jesus told, and that's that they have power. Jesus' stories, they were powerful. They, they inspire us. They, they help us to make connections. They're memorable, and they, they seek to inspire us to change the way that we live daily. Jesus' stories had power. But Jesus' stories aren't the only stories that have power. P stories in general have the power to do these kinds of things. And, and I came across a study from the Stanford Graduate School of Business that, that spoke to the power of stories. This is what Jennifer Aker said uh, about her study. She concluded that a good story is up to 22 times more memorable than facts alone. She contends that our brains, they're hardwired to understand and to retain stories more than facts. She says stories therefore help us to survive. They paint mental pictures. They light up our brains. This is part of the reason why I spend so much time every night with my three-year-old daughter named Poppy reading her stories because it will change her. It will light up her brain. It will help her to remember things, to survive, to grow into the person that she's becoming. Stories have power. I think this is also why most corporations use stories to sell us their products because they recognize there's no greater influencer than a good storyteller or a good story. You know, it's the weekend before Halloween and, uh, and I've had kids and costumes on my brain, but I, I've been drawn to all these different kinds of commercials, the stories that, that are told to sell us goods. And I love a, a good commercial, probably like you do too. And, uh, and, and this weekend, I've been mindful of a, a, one of my favorite commercials. It's come back to memory uh, in light of all of this talk about stories. And I wanted to share it with you because it tells a story that resonates with us that inspires us, that connects us, us that, that, that pushes us to live and to make decisions differently. I'm curious if it connects with you. And I want to warn you, it is 12 years old. So this is an old commercial, but I think it stays relevant even today. Let's take a look.
I don't know if that resonates with you. It certainly resonated with me. And I don't know how many people purchased a Volkswagen Passat because of that commercial, but what I know is that that story had power because it stayed with me for 12 years. And this is what stories do. Stories, they, they change us, they inspire us. And, and Jesus understood this as well. Jesus, he told stories all throughout scripture. We were reminded in the gospel of Mark uh, of the prevalence of parables, of stories in his leadership, in his speaking. This is what the gospel of Mark says. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables. When Jesus spoke, he used these incredible stories. He had about 40 stories in his repertoire across all of the different gospels. Uh, What we recognize is approximately 35% of what he said uh, came in the form of story. When you look at the gospel of Luke, that rises to 52% of everything he said had had to do with a story or a parable. These stories are also considered to be the most accurate words that Jesus is reported to have shared. So much so that Bible scholar, Yaquim Jeremias, he writes this, that we have an opportunity to stand right before Jesus when we read his stories, when we read his parables. Furthermore, he says to interpret a parable is to meet Jesus in the flesh. Whenever we read these stories, I believe that we should meet Jesus. And these stories, they should not just be memorable, but they should compel us to live differently. They should invite us to imagine a new way of living for generations to come. I love what Amy Jill Levine said. She, she writes this, Jesus told parables because they serve as keys that can unlock the mysteries we face by helping us ask the right questions. How to live in community. How to determine what ultimately matters. How to live the life that God wants us to live. The parables, these stories, if we take them seriously, not as answers, but as invitations, they can continue to form our lives for generations to come. So today we're going to take a look at one of Jesus's lesser known stories. It's the parable of the invited guests. And and what makes this parable unique, this mealtime parable unique, one of his several mealtime parables is that as he's delivering this story about a mealtime gathering, he's actually standing in that context. He's standing in, in, in a room full of dinner guests including the host of the dinner. And so he's speaking this story inside of a real life encounter. And I love that. And so as we look at this story, it's important to to get that context. And this is how the story begins describing and setting the scene. We read this in Luke, the beginning of the 14th chapter. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. I love that. Jesus, he was having dinner with a whole bunch of, of, of dinner guests, strangers who he didn't know. The, the Pharisees were there, presumably. The leader of the Pharisees was there and, and they were all gathered around Jesus and Jesus was the new guy and he was in the room. And what we learned from Luke is that they were all watching him. They were, they were, they were scrutinizing him. They were trying to evaluate him. Is he gonna be cool or, or is he not so cool? Have you ever been in a context like that where you're surrounded by a group of people, maybe at a dinner gathering and, and they're all watching you. They're all uh, paying attention to you. They're all evaluating you, whether or not they're gonna accept you or, or not. Have you been there before? You can imagine that, right? And, and so this is where Jesus is as he's delivering this story, but, but he doesn't go right into the story because something happens first. As they're all watching Jesus, this, this man appears at the dinner gathering and this man has an infirmity. He has dropsy. He suffers from an illness and nobody seems to be paying attention to this man who had entered the room. Nobody addresses him. Nobody is caring for him. Nobody even acknowledges him except for Jesus. Jesus sees this man. He's moved by compassion. He actually heals this man in front of everybody at this gathering on the Sabbath. 
And the host is the leader of the Pharisees. This was against the law. And everybody was scrutinizing Jesus. And so you can imagine what happens after Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath at this gathering in front of this judgmental crowd. They launch into questions. They start peppering him with questions. They, they begin to ask him things like, Jesus, don't you know it's the Sabbath? Or, or how could you do this? This is a day set aside for rest and honor, not a day for doing work. To which end, Jesus looks at this crowd, asking him all these questions, and he responds with a question of his own. He says, are you kidding me? That's not what Jesus said. That's what I would have said if I'd been getting those questions. Instead, Jesus responds to their questions, their accusations, with a question of his own. This is what Jesus actually says. He says, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? Like, wouldn't you do the same thing, Jesus is saying? To which the answer is, of course, yes, of course they would care for their loved ones or their animals on the Sabbath. They would, they would rescue them from, from danger. And so Jesus is like, what's the difference? He asks them the question. They don't answer. They remain silent. And that's when the whole tenor of the scene changes. Jesus now has them captivated. They're listening. They're pondering his question. And it's at this point that he launches into the story. It's at this point that he, that he tells them the parable about the invited guests at a wedding banquet. And this is what he says next. When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place first, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And, and those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. Now, the first thing I want to recognize here is that Jesus, upon telling this story, it becomes clear that he is also observing the Pharisees, who he's telling this story in front of. He's watching their behavior. And what he's noticed about their behavior is that this dinner gathering, this mealtime gathering that he's a part of, it's not like meal gatherings should be. Meal gatherings should be celebratory events. They should be moments where we can celebrate inclusive love and, and especially a wedding banquet in the story that he's talking about. But, but as he's observing these Pharisees, they are treating this as a social ceremony. They are looking this as an opportunity for them to, to gain in status, to, to gain social acceptance, to be honored or exalted or glorified by all of their peers. And, and so what Jesus sees them doing is vying for all of the most important seats, the seats of honor because they want to be seen and known uh, by their peers in an exalted kind of way. There's nothing celebratory about this, but, but that's what mealtime gatherings were supposed to be, especially wedding banquets. And so what they recognized in this story is Jesus is speaking to their context using this parable. And he says, look, you need to stop doing what you're doing. That's effectively what the story says. They have approached this gathering as an opportunity to judge one another. And there were so many different reasons to be able to judge one another. They were judging each other because of what they were eating. They were judging each other because of where they were seating. They were judging each other because of who they were seated with. There was all sorts of reasons to judge them, whether they washed their hands before the meal or, or not. And then they were using what they were seeing, their, their critical evaluation, as a way of raising or, or lowering people, exalting or humbling people in their eyes, in this social network. 
It was a social ceremony where they could create a pecking order of power and influence from top to bottom. And they were vying, all of them, for the most powerful seats, the seats of honor. And Jesus tells this story and effectively says, stop doing what what you're doing. Stop uh, paying attention to what other people feel like and and think about you and and how they accept you or their impression of you. Stop paying paying attention to that. Now, I want to stop here for a moment to ask, have you ever been in a dinner gathering like that? Have you ever attended a, a, a wedding banquet like that? Have you ever been a part of a, of a social gathering that was supposed to be celebratory and, and full of inclusive love, only to find yourself sitting at a table, looking around the room, wondering why you're not sitting with those people or why you got relegated to your seat or what other people are thinking about you as you, as you eat or as you came to the dinner or, or what you're wearing or who you're with? This is what they were all worried about. And I don't know that that's too different than the things that we worry about when we're in those kinds of places. I talk to brides all of the time and and they hate making seating assignments for their reception because of this very thing. It's hard to be in a room or in a gathering uh, where everybody is evaluating everybody else all of the time. To which end Jesus tells us once more, stop doing that. And, And as he tells us to stop doing that, he does so by drawing upon wisdom that everybody would have already known. In this parable, what Jesus is actually doing is he's quoting Proverbs 25 verses 6 and 7. This is what we read there, and everybody would have known this. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. In other words, don't put yourself forward. Don't take the seats of honor. It's not a smart plan, especially if you care about what others think because you never know who else is going to be in the room. And there's always going to be somebody more important that would give the host a reason to tell you to move down instead of move forward. If you try to take the seats of honor, there's a strong likelihood the host is going to ask you to move to a lower place and that would be humiliating. It's hard to imagine this, but in Kansas City, the context is pretty, pretty clear to understand. I want you to imagine if you walk into a restaurant and the restaurant is full of all of these different kinds of people. And, uh, and then you notice at the corner of the restaurant, there's a person sitting by himself at a table and that person happens to be Travis Kelsey. This would be like having the presumption to walk up to that table with the empty seat across from Travis Kelsey, thinking you're the most important person in the room. What do you think is going to happen when, when Taylor Swift comes walking into that same restaurant? The moment he sees her, you'll be publicly humiliated, asked to move tables, to move lower, to be relegated back into reality. This is the kind of stuff that that Jesus is pushing us away from. Don't exalt yourself. Don't, Don't thrust yourself into the place of honor. Instead, he says, do something different. My professor at Duke for for preaching, uh, Dr. Rick Lisher, he says it this way, it's always best to take the lowest place at the banquet because a public upgrade is always better than public humiliation. That's another way of understanding what Jesus says when he says, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is such practical wisdom, right? I mean, this seems like a a really practical thing for all of us to understand. It's probably something that we already know. What Jesus is saying, don't go for the the, the big seats. Don't go for the the greater seats because when you do that, you're surely going to be humbled. You're going to be humiliated. And so why don't you start uh, low? Choose a lesser seat. And if you choose a lesser seat, the likelihood of you being seen uh, and and elevated on account of you choosing the lesser seat is is so great. And that's going to get you what you're looking for. 
And so I, I read this parable and I think, is Jesus really giving us like a divinely approved strategy for, for meeting our needs, for, for serving ourselves? I mean, if we want those important seats, is he giving us a strategy to get to the important seats? Is he saying that all you really need to do to, to experience life, to enjoy the wedding banquet is to choose a lesser seat so that you can be seen and then elevated because of your humility, because of your willingness to, to lower yourself. And then when you do, you get elevated to the seat that you ultimately want. I mean, this almost seems like a, a, a devious thing to do. I mean, how many of us can feign humility a, a little bit in order to get what we're looking for? Except that's not at all what, what Jesus is saying. That would turn this whole story into a cartoon. What Jesus is talking about when he concludes this parable, and I'm going to remind you how he concludes this story. He says, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When Jesus says that, he's not talking about seating assignments. He's not talking about how it is that we can get what we want, those places of, of honor. What he's talking about instead is something much bigger. He's talking about the upside down realities of the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing, he's talking about God's surprising economy of the great reversals. He, he's reminding us that his is a kingdom, that, that his is a banquet, the heavenly banquet, where the first become last and, and where the last become first and where the lost are found, where the death turns to life, where mourning turns into dancing. And, and the same is true for heavenly banquets. And what is true is that we know that those who humble themselves will be exalted. So when Jesus is telling this story, he's effectively introducing himself. He's sharing the story of his life and of his death and of his resurrection. Uh, these guests, they're, they're, they're vying for the best seats. They're hoping to be exalted by their peers. And, and, and what Jesus recognizes and, and Jesus knows is that only God can exalt only God has the power to glorify. Only God uh, has the ability to be divine or to engage in doxa. Only God can, can uh, uh, escalate things, elevate things. Only God can exalt us. And the thing is, God was in the room. And God had no interest in those places of honor. Jesus was standing there at a banquet with these people vying for exaltation, acceptance given on account of their peers. And Jesus was standing in the cheap seats and he was longing for people to join him, to meet him, to know him. He says, humble yourself. Take one of these lesser seats. Sit with me, eat with me, and you'll be set free. You'll find something that far surpasses anything you can ask for or imagine. It's the life that you really want. Jesus was inviting people to go to the periphery, to go to the margin, to the lesser seats with him, because that's where God resides. But that's hard to do, to disregard all of the social status, social acceptance, the reverence of our peers, it's hard to put that away and to stop vying for those seats of honor, to humble ourselves, to move to the lesser seat, to follow Jesus. That's a challenging thing for, for us to do. It's hard for us to, to, to humble ourselves and it prevents us ultimately from following Jesus, from living out our life of, of faith. Have you ever experienced that before? Where because of your fear of what others might think of you or for fear of, of what that might mean to your social standing or your, or your place in your company or your neighborhood or your organization, even in your own family? Have you ever been afraid of what people would think of you? 
if you lived out your faith, if you talked about your church, if you mentioned the name Jesus, or if you demonstrated compassion or, or sought to do justice or even to practice loving kindness in a visible kind of way, have you ever not done those things on account of what others might think in a way that drew you away from Jesus? I think this is what this parable is challenging us to, to wrestle with. And I believe that sometimes out of fear of what others think, we pull back on our full potential. We, we go quiet instead of uh, speaking out. We, we find ourselves reserved or timid because of what others might do to us and where they might rank us or how they might deal with us. And, and maybe they would think we're strange or maybe they would reject us or maybe they would, they would alienate us or seek to devalue us. And so we don't say anything at all. Because if we were to do so, then those things might happen. And so fear inhibits us. Has that ever happened to you before? You know, one of the things I, I get to do from time to time is I get to go and, and share the story of the launch of Resurrection Downtown. And, and a part of that story was this, this movement that I felt God leading me in. And, and that movement was to engage in the daily practice of talking to 35 strangers in, in coffee shops or gathering spaces out in the community. And I'd have 35 conversations with people I didn't know about the church, inviting them to come and experience it. When I share those stories from time to time, you know, the common refrain is, I don't think I could do that. I'm afraid I couldn't face that much rejection. I'm, I'm afraid that I couldn't handle what people would think of me or, or the way they would look at me or, or the way that they would respond to me. And so they don't do it. And it limits their potential. Do you ever struggle with that kind of uh, experience? Pressure from the crowd and, and how they perceive you? I, I struggle with it. Even though I'm able to talk to strangers in coffee shops about the church, I still struggle with this from time to time. And it, it happened just a couple of weeks ago. I, I was with my daughter, Poppy, and we were going to Starbucks. I was driving her to school and I had a little extra time, which never happens. And so I decided to, to treat her to a cake pop and I treated myself to a cappuccino. And, and we were there going to the counter to get the cake pop, to get the cappuccino. And as we did that, uh, my, my daughter, she, in a loud voice, she looked at me and then she looked at the barista with this big smile that only Poppy could give. And she says, Dad... Talk to her about your bracelet. And I was like, Poppy, I, I don't want to talk to her about my bracelet. And what she was talking about was this, this bracelet that, that, that we've been wearing, that I've been wearing, she's been wearing, uh, that kids made for all of Resurrection members as we were preparing for the Generation to Generation uh, Capital Campaign, this idea of creating spaces and places for people uh, for generations to come. And she said, Dad, I, I'm so excited about these bracelets. Why don't you tell her about your bracelet? And she was smiling and looking at me with anticipation and joy. And so I decided to tell her, the barista, all about the bracelet, all about the church, all about the story of these kids praying for us. And when I finished, Poppy looked at me and just smiled. You know, when I think about Poppy that day, she was so uh, excited to share her faith, to share about her church. And she wanted me to do it. And and she looked at me so expectantly, like, Dad, just do it. And then when I did it, she was so proud of me. And I think, let the little ones lead the way. They don't seem to have the same fear that we have or the same reluctance that we have. And what Jesus is trying to do is the same thing. He's trying to lead the way. He's telling this group of people vying for the seats of honor, so concerned about what other people think about them, that he's saying, 
Stop doing that. Don't worry about them. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. Stop vying for those seats and instead come and be with me. Follow me. Humble yourself. Choose the lesser seat with me and you'll find what you're looking for. And yet we still struggle to do this. We struggle to share our faith, to show compassion, to do justice, to, to live like Jesus on account of what others might think. But you know what I love most about Jesus? Is that he didn't struggle uh, with this at all. He, he was unfazed by the fact that people were, were staring at him and, and watching him and, and questioning him and being critical of him. Remember, this is how the story begins. The story begins with Jesus surrounded by a crowd who were intently watching him, trying to determine who he was and, and how he was going to fit in. And, and Jesus was unfazed by this kind of stuff. Jesus was, was fearless as he sought to live his life in public ministry. Jesus was always dining with the wrong people. He was, he was always dining with tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't worried about one's cleanliness. He wasn't worried about the things that we worry about, like occupations or qualifications or, or social standing. He sought to love everybody always, all of the time. Any time of day. He loved a woman at the well in the noonday sun. He, he loved a paralyzed man lying on a mat next to a pool. He, he cared for the blind man uh, who was begging on the side of the road. A man with dropsy in the middle of this dinner gathering. Jesus was always finding opportunities to, to humble himself, to serve others, to care for others, to love others. Nothing would stand in between him and anybody else. No height, no breadth, no depth, no social impression. Jesus was always pressing on, humbling himself, serving the people around him. This is what Jesus did. This is what defined him. This was his character. And Jesus longs for it to define us, to become our character. Throughout his entire life, even though he had the power of God, even though he could have taken whatever seat he wanted, he always sought to lower himself, to, to humble himself, to, to go out onto the margins, to get to the periphery, to choose the lesser seat to avail himself to the people around him. He chose the lower seat always, disregarding its shame. And you know what? When he finally hit the bottom and he couldn't go any lower, as they raised him up on that cross and as he breathed his last breath, once he had hit the bottom, he was finally, at that moment, exalted. He had humbled himself so much. God finally exalted him. The apostle Paul says it best. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above all names. And then the apostle Paul, after describing that and explaining that, he then tells the church at Philippi to do this. He says, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Do this and you're going to find the life that you're looking for. You'll find peace and, and joy and love and freedom and the everlasting hope of, of God's heavenly banquet. He says you'll become like shining stars, like lights piercing the darkness. Where does Paul get that? But well, he gets that from one of Jesus's parables. 
One of my favorite parables, it comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in that sermon, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's looking at the crowd and he's staring them in the eyes and he says, look, you need to know this. You are the light of the world, he says. A city built on a hill, it cannot be hidden. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. Don't hide. Don't worry about what others are thinking is what he's saying. Don't be afraid. But in the same way as Jesus, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and and give glory to your Father in heaven. You will shine, Jesus says, like lights. So don't hide and don't be afraid. What, What Paul is urging his followers, uh, the church at Philippi to understand is that we need to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And, and what Jesus is urging all of the people at this dinner gathering to understand is that they need to stop paying attention to the world around them. And instead they need to follow Jesus, humble themselves, dine with Jesus in those lesser places. When we do that, we'll shine. You know, I have this piece of artwork that hangs in my office. Uh, here's a picture of it right here. And I have it there to remind me to strive to live like Jesus every day, to stop vying out for those places of honor, but instead to, to find the lesser places, to seek out the lesser places, to follow Jesus there, hoping that I might shine with the light of Christ. I wonder what would happen if we all strove to do the same thing, if we all stopped paying attention to, to how others see us, but instead sought to follow Jesus, to humble ourselves, to take risks, to shine with a, a bright light, by meeting people where they are, loving others where they are, seeking always to serve one another, love one another the way that Jesus models for us and loves us. How might the world be better or different? How might that transform all of your gatherings, whether they are holiday gatherings with your family or or any banquets that you attend or any sort of gathering that you find yourself in? What if we sought always to to care for others, to treat those as opportunities to, to live into and reveal the heavenly banquet that Jesus promises us through these stories. You know, I think that's what the saints do. I think the saints imagine and and try to live their life in that kind of way. They try to find ways not to serve themselves, but to serve others. And this is an appropriate time to begin to imagine and to remember uh, the saints. This is uh, the weekend before we get to November 1st. And November 1st is All Saints Day. And All Saints Day is a day to remember those people who lived and loved in ways that shaped us made us who we are. It's a chance to remember the saints of the past. It's a chance to remember the the loved ones who have gone on before us that we've lost. I wonder for a moment, who are your saints? Who are the people that that shaped you, that formed you, that that encouraged you, that, that made it possible for you to experience the kingdom of God so that you could live differently on account of what you've seen and heard? I wonder who your saints are. And as you're thinking about your saints, I wonder what made them your saint, how you defined them or how you established that they were one of your saints. I wonder, did it have anything to do with how they desired the approval of the crowds that they were in or how it is that they sought to exalt themselves or were your saints people that sought to seek out the lesser spaces, live lives full of humility and an unwavering devotion and sacrificial love everywhere it is that they went. This is a weekend to remember the saints and to be informed and inspired by the way that they lived once more so that we might go and seek to do the same things. 
You know, I asked that question on social media about saints. Who are your saints and why earlier this week? And I got all sorts of responses, both people who have passed and even the living saints. But there was this one email that came to me that I wanted to share. I read it and I thought, yes, this is exactly what Jesus is inviting us to imagine. And it was a letter that came from Janelle, who was a staff member here at the Church of the Resurrection. And, and she told me the story of her saint, which also happened to be her grandmother, Mamie. Janelle said that Mamie was the embodiment of what it meant to live out the personal and social gospel. She said she never missed a Sunday in church and, and she loved to read the Bible. Janelle had recently found Mamie's purse in her parents' house in touch from the last time that she carried it in 1987. It held her little Bible and notepads full of meaningful scriptures that she'd written down. Janelle said Mamie lived out her faith daily by visiting those in the hospital or who were shut in. If she wasn't in the hospital, she was sitting with a family as they were grieving or mailing out birthday cards to everyone she'd ever met. She believed that everybody deserved to be cared for, to be encouraged, to be celebrated. Janelle shared that when she was about 10, Mamie told her about her relationship with God and, and she explained that her prayer life was highly conversational. She had developed such a close uh, relationship with God that she spoke in very familiar terms in her prayers. In fact, in her private prayers, she chose to call God and Jesus by the names of Frank and Pete. She said she knew those weren't their names, but she talked to Frank and Pete all of the time as though they were her best friends. A couple years later, she developed a highly aggressive cancer, Janelle shared, and it eventually took her. In the days leading up to her death, she'd lost about half her weight. She was jaundiced. She was, uh, you know, laid in her bed in misery. And when we got the call that she finally passed, Janelle said, I sobbed uncontrollably. Even though she was 12, she felt like she should have been with her, trying to console her. And her parents told her, honey, she knew that you loved her. And in her final hours, she wasn't the same grandma you knew. She was so sick that she was hallucinating. She was having conversations with people who weren't even there. She was talking to Frank and Pete. Janelle said, Frank and Pete? Yes, she was carrying on with them as they were in the room. It was as though she knew them and they were old friends. She was ready to go with them, she told us. When Janelle heard that, her jaw dropped. Apparently, she hadn't told anybody else that, that Frank and Pete were, were God and, and Jesus, but I knew exactly who she was talking to. She wasn't hallucinating at all. She wasn't losing her mind as the rest of the world might have thought. Her faith, her life, her love, her humility, it was on full display as the veil between heaven and earth was lifting. She was talking to her good friends. And I truly believe as she was doing so, she saw God and Jesus. They were greeting Mamie, this saint, exalting her and welcoming her home. You know, the world and, and her doctors and the nurses, they presumed her to be crazy or out of her mind. She wasn't. She was living in undying faith. She was engaged in, in that act of humbling herself time and time again, choosing the lesser seats, seeking always and everywhere to, to be with Jesus, to do what Jesus does, to, to love the way that Jesus loves always and everywhere. And on account of that, she found what she was looking for, the resurrection and the life. And my hope is that we might have the courage to be and to do the same things, 
to be the same way, to live out our life of faith, to let our light so shine, to humble ourselves so that we might be exalted. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we pause and we thank you for drawing us here into this gathering. Help us to stop vying for seats of honor, for stop paying attention to our social status and standing. Free us from the opinions of others and give us the courage to seek the lesser spaces, to meet you there on the margins, dining with you, loving like you, serving others humbly with you so that your light would shine through us and the whole world would give you glory and together we might all feast as one at your heavenly banquet full of joy and peace and love and everlasting life. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.